C-sharp.net is the framework that is most often used to write software for the Microsoft Windows operating system. For many years, the C-sharp.net framework was closed source, but Microsoft's recent push towards open source technology has led to the creation of .NET Core, a fork of C-sharp.net that is composed of a small subset of features from the original C-sharp.net stack. This episode takes us through a history of .NET, with two program managers who have worked on .NET for many years, Emo Landworth and Lee Coward. We also explored the present and the future of .NET. We discussed .NET Core and .NET usage on operating systems other than Microsoft Windows. This is another recent development, .NET on Linux and on Mac OS. This is a great episode, and people have been calling for more shows about the Microsoft stack, so if you have any suggestions for things around .NET or anything else, please send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Lee Coward and Emo Landworth are program managers at Microsoft, where they work on .NET, specifically .NET Core. Lee and Emo, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having us, Jeff. Yes, it's great to have you. So I'd like to start our conversation by talking about frameworks in the abstract. Most people programming work with some kind of software framework. What is the purpose of a software framework? Yeah, so the general idea is when you write your app, there's uh, many things that your app has to do, right? You have to read from the file system, you want to maybe have a UI or you want to talk to a database or write a web server or talk to a web server maybe. Do crypto. Do cryptographic things, yes. Computer, you know, SHA-1 checksum maybe. And so all of this, uh, you know, middleware kind of like, you know, or low-level work, you really don't want to write this yourself in assembly language or C or whatever your language is that you're actually programming in. And so the idea of frameworks is essentially to give you those functionalities nicely packaged, pre-packaged, uh, that fit the programming language that you're using. In, in, in our case, that's you know, C-sharp, VB, F-sharp. There's a variety of .NET languages that are basically designed to make this experience really nicely. And the framework is also designed to make the consumption experience quite nicely. You mentioned cryptography, standing up a web server. What are some other examples of software functionality that a framework should make easier for the developer? So um, depending on which which world you're talking about, um, like the, the .NET framework, which you find in Windows environments, um, you know, there's a, um, a UI graphic elements um, that, that are also uh, can be difficult or uh, tedious to, to implement on your own. And you know, from our perspective, we have um, the, the, window, uh, the WPF um, for Windows applications. There's also uh, WinForms and some other things that get utilized. So um, these are some other areas, uh, as Emma mentioned, that you, know, you, you don't necessarily want to tackle them yourselves. Um, you know, it's pretty tedious stuff um, and notoriously difficult to get right, um, as we keep finding out. Uh, and so these these are other areas that are that are pretty big that you're going to find in frameworks. Um, you know, any kind of uh, you know, internet communications, um, kind of common stuff that everybody really wants to do and utilize. Um, you know, there's also other areas um, like. Uh, um, you know, identity and access control, um, which which is also fairly difficult and uh, kind of a specialized area, um, where 
contributors to a framework. Um, they, they have a passion about that kind of thing, and so they'll they'll do a really good job at it, and then make it available for the larger ecosystem. Yeah, I think in general, like one easy way to visualize this is, I mean, especially when you look at computer science 101, everybody at some point wrote an implementation for linked list or quicksort, right? And these are the kind of things that are fun in a test because, you know, it's only 10, 20 lines of code, but, uh, you know, every, every single line counts and it's always very easy to get those wrong, right? I mean, you have an off by one error where you, oh, you forgot to subtract one or you forgot to add one or you forgot to handle the corner case when the collection is empty and stuff like that. And so the idea of frameworks is to make these like you know small things like that very easy, but also the pretty big things that are usually like composed of smaller things, like as Lee just mentioned, you know, identity and other things. They're usually always composed of of some you know simpler things like you know collections and other things that that, that you could write yourself, but uh, it's quite tedious to do that for every single app. .NET is the framework that is used to develop most of the software that runs on Microsoft Windows. And it was started or released back in 2002, I think. What was the experience of an application developer back in 2002, or if that date is wrong, whatever is the earliest, like the early, early days of .NET? I mean, if you if you look at the time of 2002, right, there was... Uh, you know, there was another thing that Microsoft wrote that was pretty popular at the time, which was uh, Visual Basic for Applications, which was bundled with Office and then Visual Basic by itself, which was, uh, you know, both of them had the same purpose, which is, you know, making business apps easier to write, right? And business apps are usually a bunch of dialogues with a bunch of buttons and checkboxes and radio buttons and data grids and that, and that sort of thing. And so the idea of that was to give you a really easy way to, uh, you know, to write those apps. And then at the same time, uh, you know, Java was pretty popular, and uh, .NET was basically the hybrid between the two. Where, whereas VB went after the uh, people that may not even have a computer science degree, but they're really domain experts, let's say physicists or business analysts, and they just want to automate their Excel spreadsheet or they just want to write a really small app that does something. VB was great for that. If you tried to use VB for something really large, that didn't really work very well. On the same end, Java was really useful for you know writing server-side code, and it was very popular at the time. It was very, you know, sophisticated language with object orientation, all of that. But it was really hard for the average person to actually write an app in that. And so .NET basically tried to bridge these two worlds, which is, you know, make it easy for you know the typical business app, but also use a foundation that makes it really nice to actually build you know highly sophisticated apps. Uh, so especially interrupt with native code when you have you know Windows APIs that are usually written in native code, make it easy to interoperate with those uh, if they're not already prepackaged in, you know in the framework of course. Um, and we also went about uh, writing web apps. So we basically had a programming model with web forms that allowed business people to not only write you know a desktop application but also an application that would be uh, running on a on a web server. And so that was really the you know the goal of .NET when it launched in 2002. Like bringing bringing rapid application development, which was basically the the synonym for drag and drop start application construction, to the masses on the Windows platform. So I haven't programmed much in .NET, and I know there are some share of listeners who have not. There are also a, a bunch of listeners that are fanatical about .NET, but for those who are not familiar with it. Um, they might be familiar with the JVM, and there's this big ecosystem around languages built on the JVM where you get this, there's this layer of interoperability with the lang- with different languages like Scala and Java, 
at the Java bytecode layer in the JVM, and there's something similar in the the Microsoft ecosystem, which is known as the CLR. Dot, .NET uses this uh, virtual machine runtime known as the CLR, and um, so you mentioned Visual Basic and C Sharp, two languages that both run on the CLR. Did those or, did those languages originally compile down to a bytecode that was uh, compatible with each other, or uh, was that made was that a decision that was made to unify them later on? So when, as I said, like uh, at the time where we built .NET, Java was available and VB was available, Visual Basic, and these were two different languages, of course, with two different runtimes and .NET. Uh, with the CLR, which stands for the Common Language Runtime, like our goal was to able to be able to provide a platform that would support multiple languages. So, the last version of the VB that wasn't .NET based was uh, Visual Basic six, and then Visual Basic seven was essentially uh, taking VB and make a .NET version of that that basically sits on top of the CLR. Um, the the interesting thing here was that you know you could do something that was really interesting. You could write parts of Yap in C-Sharp and you could write parts of Yap in Visual Basic and they could talk to each other. So you, the, one of the demos we did very early in 2002 was you would write one class in Visual Basic and then you would create another project that was using C-Sharp and it w- was able to derive from that time. And that was pretty novel at the time with this uh, Web.NET launch. But yeah, so in that sense, .NET was always built on the premise of uh, making multiple languages work on top of uh, you know, a common bytecode infrastructure, essentially. What are the languages that can be used within the CLR ecosystem today? Yeah, I guess the most popular ones from our side are, you know, still C Sharp and Visual Basic. Uh, F Sharp was, I think, created in, I want to say, 2005-ish, which is also pretty popular at the time. It's a, it's a dialect of ML, uh, which many people know, or, or Camel is a different dialect of that. And so F Sharp is basically a functional programming language that runs on top of the CLR. Um, there's multiple community projects out there with their own crazy languages. I mean, uh, if you look at you know, esoteric languages, there's a whole variety of them. Um, uh, you know, there's like, you know, ranging from the canonical brain fuck to, I think it's called Boo. There's a you know, very similar, similar language. There's a bunch of scripting languages that are actually ported to the CLR. Um, you know, there was Iron Python, Iron Ruby. That was, uh, I think, done in two thousand and eight. Uh, Somebody did a COBOL, didn't they? Uh, yeah, there's definitely COBOL and Fortran.net, yeah, which yeah. actually commercial offerings, uh, which allow interop with you know existing Fortran code very easily with the with the with the runtime. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think at some point I saw a, a, a chart here that says there's about seventy programming languages that we know about that are targeting the CLR. Um, but yeah, like I mean, it, it is. Uh, I think it's fair to say from our side, there's at least three languages that we support, um, and then there is partners like you know Intel and uh, I think Fujitsu who do COBOL and Fortran. Is there a lot of development on the CLR on the bytecode uh, compiler platform and runtime, or or is this virtual machine layer a solved problem? Well, there's still quite a lot of work going on in the area. Um, you know, obviously, on the the, the desktop framework, um, since that's been around since 2002 and has gone through um, a couple of major iterations, um, you know, all the way up to what's being offered on Windows 10 today, um, it's it's uh, far more mature there, um, and that work uh, has has moved into the .NET Core world. Um, so it's it's certainly while the the way we do things is is 
I suppose you call it a solved problem. Well, though we're you know innovating and and making various areas better um, with each release, um, it's it's fairly stable. Um, you know, we certainly aren't doing crazy work there uh, at this time, um, but there's there's definitely a lot of work going on. So we've been talking about .NET and the different languages that are in this ecosystem. What about .NET Core? What is .NET Core? And you can think of .NET Core essentially as, you know, basically a, a spin-off of the full framework, right? If you look at the TV uh, ecosystem, like so, .NET Framework is is the product that that is .NET for Windows, right? That was the platform that we created in 2002 for, you know, rapid application development. And uh, with .NET Core, it's basically, you know, more or less the same idea, but taken into a new direction. So the, so the one major direction we went after was uh, cross-platform. So .NET Framework was designed to work well on Windows, and we never really made any effort to port this to other platforms. Um, and it was Silverlight, but this was, you know, slightly different, I guess. Um, but .NET Core was basically designed to be cross-platform uh, all the way down, and also being open source from the get-go. And so we, we basically have a smaller subset of the full framework, uh, you know, with the pieces that we think make sense for cross-platform development. Uh, so, for example, WinForms and WPF, which are the, both the UI stacks that we have in the .NET framework, they're Windows only, so they're not part of .NET Core. Uh, so with .NET Core right now, the, the, the application model we, we are going after is on the server uh, with ASP.NET, as the as the web uh, technology uh, that basically emits HTML on, on the server, um, as well as uh, you know web services obviously that just return JSON, and then on the client side we have UWP, which is a Windows technology that is uh, for designed for uh, touch-based applications that can run on a you know on a, on a phone, on the Xbox, or on a desktop computer, and um, they're slightly different in implementation uh, because we talked about bytecode and we talked about the CLR being a a, a virtual um, uh, a virtual execution environment, and uh, the idea for mobile devices these days is that you no longer run a compiler on the fly. So you're not actually a virtual machine in that sense. You're actually compiling your code uh, on a build server, and that compiles basically native code already. And then when you actually run it on the device, uh, you you know you're actually loading native code, and so the app is you know compiled down as a regular native C++ app would be as well. And so these things are so fundamentally new that we felt it's, it's easier for us and the community because, you know, with open source, we want to get a community with us as well to basically do a spin-off of .NET and, and that is a slightly smaller subset so we can have uh, something working uh, earlier rather than later. So so for, for those who, um, who are not uh, listening closely, this is a recent event. Uh, .NET Core was open sourced. Uh, what was it in the last year or so? Last couple of years? Uh, I think 2014, I believe. Yeah, so almost two years ago. And uh, yeah, then our first release uh, was was June of this year. The first full release. Right, and so this was iconic of Microsoft moving into the more open source mentality that it now has. What was involved in preparing this project that? has been around for like 14 years or 12 years, I guess, when it was originally open sourced. What was involved in preparing it for that open source um, publication? So um, 
Emma was certainly uh, knee deep in that one. Um, but you know, in in essence, it's it's an entire, entirely um, different mindset. Um, you know, we've Microsoft and you know certainly the .NET team um, had for since our, our beginning um, have, have had the, the mindset and the, the culture of, you know, we, we gather our requirements and we crawl in the cave for um, a year or multiple years. And then out the other end comes this giant boxed product um, that hopefully somebody will uh, enjoy and benefit from. Um, and so now all of a sudden we want to get ourselves in this world where um, all of the laundry is being aired uh, out in front of everybody and everybody gets to comment on it and work on it. So was, there's lots of cultural conversations that, that happened um, on the way. Um, you know, there's uh, all kinds of uh, kind of code hygiene things that um, you, you certainly don't want going on out in the open. Uh, you want to make sure that um, you know, the, that, provenance of code is is managed well and that you can keep track of that kind of thing so there, there were just a, a, a long laundry list of um, items that had to be basically cleaned up um, uh, before we could drop these things uh, out in the open um, and allow um, uh, the community access to it um, we did have a project that went on a few years before this uh, which was our reference source um, so that was available in the open and at least gave gave users a kind of a direct access to um, to the source code. Um, so some of the early legwork was done through that, um, but going to open source and and standing up the the GitHub projects and um, um, the kind of governing foundation um, around this was was certainly another large bit of work before we could could open it up. The one thing that's it's interesting with me, from our point of view is that if you look in the open source community, right, there's basically two major players. I mean, my example would be Linux, right, where you have people like Linus and a bunch of others that are basically working on the kernel, right? These are people that are either employed by some companies like Linus who are actually being paid to do that, but they also are hobbyists, enthusiasts, and a bunch of other people who just like hacking on the kernel. And as long as the quality of the code is good, like... There's nothing wrong with that, right? And then on the other side, you have businesses like Red Hat that, you know, take all these projects like the kernel, you know, the KDE and all the other things and package them up um, into something that actually works well to each other. Um, but then you also have like, of course, you know, support policies where larger companies want to know that, you know, when they call three years later, somebody can actually answer the phone and help them getting unblocked. And so Microsoft is unique in the sense that we are both, right? Like we are the, the, the party driving the open source for .NET, but also we are the party supporting it. And so with .NET Framework, we have a lot of experience on supporting the enterprise, but we haven't really had a lot of experience on like working with an open source community, right? It's, this is like, you know, the open source mindset, of course, but also the true agility of like how these things work, right? Because as Lee said, we are used to being three years in the basement, essentially, going dark from the public, so it's like a you know almost like a basement project, but open source works differently. It's all online. You you work with people from all over the world that you don't even know potentially. You just know them by their by their GitHub alias, and so getting the team bought into that culture was a, a decent amount of work. And uh, from my point of view, because I'm a program manager, which means I'm not writing a lot of code. In fact, I don't write any besides sample code. But what I do is uh, you know I spec features and I talk to customers a lot. And to me, what, what open source really makes it possible for us is to have these conversations almost in real time. I, cannot, I can basically tell customers, look, the bug you reported Monday 
is fixed on Tuesday, and by Wednesday you may be able to get an updated build and and, and give it a spin and give us feedback. So the for us, like the, the iteration speed at which we can actually gather feedback, get feedback, and, and move forward, is just you know several orders of magnitude bigger than it used to be when we did our like two to three year release cycles. But at the same time, because we still want to support quality and we still want to you know support things for potentially a decade or longer. Uh, we have to find a way to take all these other processes that, that actually do take time. I mean, if you think about what you have to do for compliance when you ship to you know several countries in the world when it comes to cryptography standards and like you know export limitations and localization, those things cannot happen in real time on GitHub. Right? They will take time, and so we kind of need a way for these things to catch up. And uh, uh, you know, we I think we we have a pretty good model at the, at this point of the last two years that we quite happy with. But I think bridging these two things is, a, is definitely a, an ongoing challenge and probably will remain so for a while. The cultural shift is so fascinating to me. I'm um, Right now I'm going to the, or this week is the DevOps Enterprise Summit in, in San Francisco. And it's interesting because it's, it's all these companies where, these companies like Target and insurance companies and these companies that are have been around for a long time but uh because of the way that technology has changed and is affecting their organization these it's all these giant enterprise companies that are having to make this titanic shift and it's in and at the root of it it's like a cultural shift it's a cultural shift that's incentivized by technological shifts like continuous integration and um and other other cloud and all this other stuff um but you know what I find interesting about the Microsoft open source shift and the other in the shift to cloud and the other stuff that's going on in the company, it's not like being a a technology company makes this cultural shift easy. You know, it's like a cultural shift at a company is hard to make, regardless of of what kind of cultural shift that is. If any kind of major cultural shift, because a culture is so embedded in how the the principal people at a company think. So I'm very interested in how the other, like what are the things at the margins that have been hard to change or, or even the core things that have been hard to change, like source, like I think about source control, right? Like I don't think Microsoft, I mean, maybe Microsoft used Git before this open source push, but probably not as prevalently as it's emphasized now. Yeah. So, um, you know, Source control is always a, a fun topic around here. Um, you know, there, there there have been I don't know how many source control systems that we walked through. Um, I've I've been lurking these halls for a very very long time, um, and I, there haven't been as many source control systems as I've had offices, um, but there have been a few. Um, so we end up in this spot, which is really interesting. So so there's the open. Working in the open, working on GitHub, and there's all kinds of great things there. Um, but you know, there's there's classes of issues that you have to deal with that you don't necessarily want to take out in the open, right? You know, maybe there's um, you know security issues, for example. You know, you don't necessarily want to air those immediately um, because you got to fix the stuff first. Um, yeah. So one of the things we juggle with um, is you know internal stuff versus uh, you know what what's just done predominantly on GitHub, 
And what's really interesting about the the culture that we were just talking about is, you know, there was there was all this all this work and conversation. You know, we want to go open source. We're going to do all of our work in the open. We're going to use this whole new set of tools on GitHub and 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 the interactions that you have to learn. Uh, your just just your daily workflow. You know, I'm 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 a dev and I'm doing all my work all day long. And by the way, we're going to pick you up from where you currently work today in Visual Studio or whatever you worked with. You know, for the last year, um, we're going to shift everything over to GitHub, um, and that has been so wildly successful um, within our team, especially um, that when whenever I'm talking to to various team members, like, okay, here's this thing that we have to do back in the old world. Um, it it it's really funny because I think there's more of a reaction about going back to where they used to than um, getting them to move forward into into GitHub today. Yeah, the one thing that is fun about Microsoft is that it doesn't seem like from the outside, but it's certainly true on the inside, is that like change is a constant. I mean, like pretty much every release, things are... I mean, Microsoft has this old joke that we always reorg. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm somewhat serious when I say sometimes we reorg for the sake of reorg so that people are not getting too used to the ways things are. And like if, if you're growing up in that culture, which most of the people on my team have, you are not necessarily reluctant to deal with change because you're so used to things changing. I mean, as Lee said, like we ran through a bunch of open source, uh, sorry, uh, version control tools over the over the years. And, and I'm staring at a Git cheat sheet right now, actually, uh, <laughs> at this wall. And so it is it is pretty known that, that, that you know, you, you, you have to keep moving with the industry, otherwise you will be left behind. And uh, this is true among many other things, whether you look at, you know, we built Azure, uh, you know, which is a whole different paradigm. Uh, you know, with containers is a whole different paradigm of how you deploy. Uh, you know, and GitHub and open source are clearly also other, um, you know, things that are that, that are different. But at the core, like you're still you're still writing code, right? You still deal with people that can write code, and so the day-to-day job, the mechanics change. But you know, if you were the dev that owns the garbage collector, or you're the dev that writes the JIT compiler, I mean, your expertise is still your expertise, right? These things are not you know, you know they, they don't change that much. I mean, what does change is the tools you use to get your job done and to a certain extent also the culture in which you work, right? I mean, at Microsoft, we have this huge push now for, you know, team rooms where instead of being like in your own office, you're actually sitting together with the people that, you know, uh, you co-develop the, you know, the product with and so you have more face time with your coworkers. Um, and so more social space as well to make social like an actual part of the day-to-day job is a huge thing there. And um, I think that, you know, as I said, I, I believe we are like pretty aggressive with those changes. I mean, if you consider that we open sourced, pretty much at the time, like I think a few months earlier, we more or less switched the whole team to Git. Uh, we switched the whole team to basically using GitHub primarily as the development environment. And uh, there was, a, you know, I would say a very quick period where people were, of course, running around like headless chickens and asking for like cheat sheets and other things. But that's a very short period of time. And every once in a while, you get still a question on how Git or GitHub works. But by and large, I mean, that that, that change was very quick. But, um, you know, the cultural aspects that go with that, the fact that, you know, every change you do know is public history, that, that took a bit longer. Uh, but... Also, it's very rewarding. It's almost like having kids, right? Everything in your in your life changes, but at the same time, you know, it's very rewarding. Like if, if everything is in the public, I have a much easier time talking to customers. Um, but at the same time, like it's 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 so rewarding to see those things so early on out there, and like being able to like talk to people like you, for example, 
have interviews. And this is something that we haven't really done before because we're so used to this, you know, corporate culture of going dark for several years and then big, there's a conference, we release everything. And then, you know, we're working towards the next conference three years later. Um, doing this all like as we go is actually kind of kind of exciting. Yeah, I believe it. So I want to talk more about .NET Core. I'd love to continue talking about the culture. Maybe the discussions we have can permeate culture as well. But .NET Core is, is pretty interesting. It is this small subset of the .NET framework that is a fork of the .NET framework. Talk more about why that's important. Why is it useful to have this separate version of .NET that is smaller, that contains a subset of the things in the original .NET? So there's a, um, there's a number of threads we can chase on that one. Um, one of them uh, is uh, just looking at the, the long history of, of the .NET framework on Windows. Um, because that was so successful um, and has uh, become kind of an integral part of Windows, um, it, it's a, bit, a little bit of a double-edged sword. Uh, because it's so successful, it, it exists on you know somewhere around two billion machines, um, and with that number of installations, uh, any kind of update to the framework, um, you know, kind of carries a. a pretty high level of risk you know even even if you only mess up a, a very very small percentage of installations it's going to be a very big number um, so uh, the the ability to make even even changes that that are super necessary you know you, you mentioned some big companies you know we we work with them regularly on on bugs that they find and and get hot fixes to them um, you know, even in that environment where you know we have to do something to get target unblocked or or something of that nature um, with the dotnet framework it, it's it's kind of nerve-wracking um, because pretty much any change you know no matter how benign it might seem has the potential to uh, negatively impact somebody else um, and there are some uh, well, now they're funny stories, but at the time they were very funny um, of, of breaks of that kind that, that did happen. Um, so getting to a place where where we could um, innovate and and grow the technology um, at at a fairly rapid clip was was very important. Um, also the the um, uh, the need for um, better improvements on. Uh, server workloads, um, the ASP.NET workloads of the world, or web services, um, getting to a point where uh, the, those were being handled as as efficiently and as fast as possible um, was was something we wanted to get to. And again, that that's part and parcel to the first part of the answer, which is you know we had to get to a place where we could make um, some some pretty wholesale changes uh, in some parts of the stack, um, which we couldn't do um, with the .NET framework. Um, and then there was also the um, the, the recognition that um, there's there's other uh, um, OS um, environments out there that that would be uh, very beneficial to be a part of um, you know being you know Linux and Mac um, you know that that's been a super rewarding part part of the the journey um, you know, I've got I had Linux way in my background um, shortly after the AT&T divestiture um, so it was kind of fun coming home uh, and you know, it's been a lot of fun seeing the the devs dig into that environment as well and learning you know this OS has been around since 
the, the mid to late 60s, um, and lots of stuff has been done for really, really good reasons. And, and bringing that across to other platforms, you know, it's making our Windows code better, and it's just lots of interesting things are happening because of that. Um, other things, Imo? Yeah, I think like, to a large extent, it's also just an engineering reality that when you really want to move the product somewhere where it's not today, the problem space is much, much more uh, tractable when you make it smaller, right? I mean, as I said before, if you look at the .NET framework, to give you some idea, there's a quarter million APIs in that thing. So that's not small. It's actually, you know, given that it was, at the time you open source, like 13 years old, uh, we basically, uh, or actually older than that, probably more like 15 years old, um, there's a decent amount of like work that went into that, right? And it's multi-million lines of code. So if you if you open source on day one all these multi-million lines of code, you also have to move this thing around on day one, right? When most of the infrastructure isn't ready for cross-platform, right? Because we when we open source, we had like a very small subsection actually working, and then we worked in the open on GitHub towards actually having a public release. So it's much more tractable when you start with something smaller where you can build a small console application that actually already does something meaningful, have a runtime that actually doesn't crash on startup maybe would be good too, and then you start adding from there. And so we're we're actually slowly growing .NET Core now. I mean, actually with the upcoming version of .NET Core, which will probably ship sometime next year, we actually will have a lot more compatibility with the full framework because we actually added much, much more stuff back to .NET Core. But you know, when you when you bootstrap something uh, in the community, it's always very good if you start with something small, something that works, uh, because then it's much easier to join the party bus than if you have this super large thing where no matter what you do, you always break the build. It's not very rewarding for people. <laughs> and uh, there were also net new scenarios we went after. So you took .NET, you stripped away all these things that you um, maybe were less necessary, or you just wanted to shrink the footprint and you got to .NET Core, and now you can grow .NET Core outward. But in that process of shrinking what .NET is, um, how were you thinking about the the people who have been on .NET for a long time? Did is the is the long term vision to to give everybody a smooth path to moving from .NET to .NET Core, or do you see these as totally disjoint paths that companies or individual developers will follow? Well, we always had multiple different, you know, we call them like skews or like flavors of .NET as I refer to them. I mean, when we started .NET Framework, pretty much in the same year, we also had a version of .NET that was designed for, you know, the mobile devices of the early 2000s, right, which had like 8 megs of RAM or something insane like that. Um, so we called this compact framework, and then later on we had Silverlight, and then there were many other flavors that followed. So there always were multiple, you know, editions or flavors of .NET, and code sharing between them historically have been quite challenging because they were not necessarily designed uh, for code sharing. Because quite frankly, we didn't think of this as being a major scenario, uh, which may sound stupid with the knowledge that we have today, but you know, at the time that was uh, not uh, a business goal. Uh, but today, we actually really highly care about being able to share code very easily between the different flavors of .NET. And uh, if you just look at the industry holistically, uh, you know, in the, in the early 2000s, pretty much everybody worked on a PC, and like PC was a standardized platform, and you could bet on this thing getting more and more powerful, having more and more storage. And uh, that was also the primary platform that your apps were run on, too, right? And servers, same thing. 
now with uh, mobile devices and servers and the cloud, the variety of devices is actually much larger than it used to be in the early 2000s. So I think actually, practically speaking, we will have to deal with even more flavors of you know, be operating systems, if you look at Linux or whether it's, uh, you know, development platforms like .NET. And so our goal has been that we want to make developers' lives easier, not harder. And so, yes, code sharing is a real thing for us. And uh, we actually have a thing what we call .NET Standard, which is essentially a specification of APIs that we expect all .NET platforms to offer. So that when you write libraries towards that specification, you can... You can know that this thing can run anywhere uh, and not just on a particular flavor of .NET. And uh, we believe that you know, with our upcoming version of .NET Standard 2.0, which will also go out you know, sometime next year, uh, we actually have reached the point where things that you expect to work will just work. I mean, usually that's you know, things like business logic that you want to share between multiple flavors of .NET or just you know, algorithmic things, uh, utility libraries. These are the kind of things that will be very easy to share. And then there will be also things on top where you can actually share the UI layer uh, if you don't want to specialize the UI. So you can actually share every layer, essentially, of your application. And um, you know, we will build the tooling in Visual Studio uh, as well as on the command line uh, to make that really easy for people to actually target that, what we call the horizontal, right, which is the cross-cutting thing that runs on multiple different flavors of .NET. The initial announcement of .NET Core described it as cloud-optimized, and um, that could mean any number of things. But what does um, what is the reflection of Microsoft's push towards cloud, towards Azure? What is the reflection of that in the selection of um, of things that you that you chose for .NET Core? So, um, you know, as Emma was describing, um, you know, coming up with the, the the smaller set of things that we can we can bootstrap for the initial offering. Um, in going through that process, we had to define kind of the the initial business goals and and key scenarios that we were going to make sure um, you know were, were first class. Uh, and the 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 web workload um, or out in the cloud, as you would say, um, we're very much a part of that uh, with with ASP.NET Core um, and Entity Framework. Um, core being part of that, um, so it was it was the uh, the working on these these server workloads and the ability to um, you know serve a ridiculous number of, of requests at any given time um, that were some some of the key scenarios that we were after. Um, another part of it uh, has to do with the way um, uh, .NET Core um, and applications are are deployed um, with. Uh, with the .NET framework on Windows, um, you know you were you were dealing either with um, you know Windows installers of uh, any number of varieties, um, or you were uh, working with um, uh, click once applications, which um, you know you, you provided a essentially a um, a server location. You would click on it; it would check for updates automatically and install it for you. But things were getting installed, um, registries, entries were being created, um, you know, all kinds of things were, were done to your machine during the install process, uh, which made um, acquiring an application um, pretty heavyweight. Um, you know, enterprises had to had to deal with a lot of different things uh, to get these things to deliver to machines. Um, optimized for the cloud, um, one of the things that, that it allows you 
implies um, is that we can easily move these things around. Um, and .NET Core, um, you know, almost regardless of where you're putting this thing, there's no um, registry entries that are created because you know, there is no such thing on, on um, other OSs. It's, it's a Windows concept. Um, and so you know, moving things around is, is really as simple as you know, X copying it from one place to another. And as long as um, you, know, you, you carry all the important things along with it, you know, things are just gonna work. Um, you know, so it's it's the it's the size and it's the agility of the the application ex, uh, acquisition experience um, uh, and the performance that we're we're after. That's that's a part of it. And we're still like pushing the envelope on that. I think the I mean we uh, as Lee just said we just uh, shipped .NET Core one one, which is a small update to it. Or we are about to, I think. No, actually, we shipped it already. We shipped it already, right? With Connect. With yeah. Connect. So yeah. it's like pretty much about ten to. days. Um, uh, so we're still like pretty much getting into the okay. We we have something that works. It's robust and it's 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 used for production. But it's more or less you know we 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 took from full frame what we already have for the base layer, like especially the runtime and other pieces. And then the major thing on .NET Core one zero and one one that's already there is we have a brand new uh, web stack on top of that that was uh, written more or less from scratch with the learnings that the web team has done over the last ten years. Um, and uh, you know over the next. Uh, I guess years it will also like optimize more the base layers. I mean, if you look at all runtime, if you look at the way we we actually deploy, there are still many things we can optimize. Uh, as Lee said, like for size in particular, if you look at modern cloud deployments, you you pretty much always talk about containers at some point in Docker in particular, and you know size matters. I mean, there is like Linux distros that are like four megabytes. Um, and uh, if your app is like you know six hundred megabytes because it brings in you know the world, well then you know you're pretty much loading that container like by three orders of magnitude, and um, it, you know from 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 our point of view like there's many things we can do and we already have plans to actually tackle that area, but there's also like other things like you know if you look at just the, the sheer throughput of your server, I mean we can be smarter about you know how can we you know cache certain things how can we do buffer pooling. Can we improve the GC to to deal with memory in a, in a more efficient way? And there's actually, you know, none of what, what I'm telling you right now is a super state secret. In fact, when you're on GitHub and you uh, look in the right repositories, there's actual, you know, actual work that happens between us as well as people from the, from the community. I mean, there's one guy in particular. He works for a company that does gaming in the cloud, and uh, he pretty much submits fixes for all the layers, whether it's GC, whether it's you know, threading and threat synchronization or just, you know, library functionality that he that he wished would be there. And uh, we're working with, with those kind of people you know, on the vNext of the product and, and do actually something that is a bit more, um, you know, novel than what we have done so far with .NET Core because, as I said, it's mostly bringing up existing stuff on Crossplat and now we're actually putting it to the next level, which is, okay, now let's make the thing even better than where we are today. Yeah, you mentioned Docker and in relation to stripping out the things that you don't necessarily need uh, and down to something smaller. And it also reminds me of some shows that I've done about unikernels, which are these um, kernels that, you know, it's like it allows you to run Linux with a much smaller footprint. Uh, you know, for example, in the cloud, you don't need a USB, um, a USB driver, right? And like many of the, many of the distributions of Linux on the cloud uh, have a virtual driver for USB port, which doesn't make any sense because it's a virtual machine. Uh, even if it had a USB port, 
what would like you'd have to email you'd have to send a piece of mail containing a USB uh, key to Amazon and have them plug it into your server that's sitting in a data center somewhere. So it doesn't make sense for there to be a USB driver on a on a cloud instance. And um, similarly, I'm sure there are lots of software libraries that you can take out of .NET that don't make much sense when you don't have access to the machine. Um, These are the kind of things, I mean, I mean like the, the one example I want to bring up is like, you know, the, the easiest thing is you can just leave out files. But then when you actually look closer, like you really want something like a C++ style linker, right? That can... Basically, what we call tree shaking your program, which is you know finding stuff that is unreachable and just stripping that out. Um, if you do it with tooling, the nice thing is the developer doesn't necessarily have to be aware of the things. You can just say you build your app the way you want it to, and then the things you don't happen to use, well, we just don't happen to deploy for you because you you know you don't need them, right? And so it's it's pay for play as we call it because you can use anything we you know all the things we have, but chances are a given app will never use everything. And then we can basically create optimized deployments that really cater to a particular app rather than, you know, having to, you know, let people, you know, deal with having multiple distributions uh, and having to pick, you know, the right things out of them all the time, which is actually quite hard. I want to talk more about the open source community. What is the interaction with the open source community? You mentioned this guy who is at a gaming company and contributes things to all layers of the stack. That's a very interesting anecdote. Are there any other interesting anecdotes about how Microsoft uh, interacts synergistically with the open source community and how that relationship works? So um, we've been really deliberate and about how we've we've nurtured the environment. You know, everywhere, everything from, you know, we, we have our... Um, our, our Twitter feed that that uh, we keep pretty active, um, and there's lots of activity there. Um, uh, we've been spending a lot of time uh, and thought on on blog posts on the on the .NET blog, um, just making sure people are aware of what's going on and and how to get to the new places, and certainly GitHub, um, where you know the, the lion's share of the interaction happens. Um, we also have uh, many people that are involved um, in. Um, uh, you know, community um, events. You know, whether it's uh, you know user groups or or whatever it happens to be. Um, there's there's lots of that going on. Um, you know, this next week, this week, um, we have our you know MVP gathering here, which is something that's been um, going on for quite a long time. Um, but but now it, it's you know much more vibrant because um, these MVPs, rather than being connected to some super secret um, email list. Um, you know, can now interact with us in the open, um, as well as having some uh, some other insider things that they they're involved in. Um, yeah, so there's there's all these different facets um, and avenues that that we're um, approaching the community in, and the community is approaching us. Um, you know, Emma mentioned uh, the the one person that that's contributing uh, from the gaming perspective, um, but you know, we have other users like that. Uh, I, I don't know the exact numbers. Um, but if you see, uh, Scott Hunter um, has has a presentation where, and Scott Hanselman does as well, um, where they show off um, uh, the the external contributor um, growth um, over the last two years since we started this, um, and it, you know it's it's your your uh, typical um, you know. Uh, 
virus outbreak kind of world map, um, you know, where you've got the, the, the small coverage in the beginning and then it just gets kind of scary looking with, with just the amount of uh, contributions that are coming from all over the place. Um, you know, and, and one thing I've been trying to do with each one of our releases is, is give contributors good, good credit, um, uh, out on the, the GitHub repo and, and within the release notes, um, just making sure that they're all called out. Um, you know, so there's, there's definitely a lot of activity. Um, and a lot of it gets um, tied in with specific products. Um, you know, there's there's the the gaming application that was just mentioned. You know, he's got a, you know, kind of a very specific thing that he wants to do. He's he's standing up games um, in the cloud. You know, so there's some some very uh, unique and, and specialized scenarios that he cares about. Um, you know, there's some performance stuff that he certainly cares about that that we may not cover in our performance lab, um, but now we do because um, he's he's given us the um, the pull requests and uh, things that he cares about, and so we we move that throughout the code. And there's others. You know, there's um, you know certainly other areas that are kind of the same way um, where there's specialized scenarios that the contributors. You know, it's it's stuff that's within their wheelhouse um, that they're really passionate about that we not, may not work on as a mainline scenario, um, but because they are excited about it and they engage with us um, and our developers are out in their areas daily, um, that they'll work with them and they'll come up with the, the pull requests and they'll end up a part of the next product. The anecdote that I always tell people is, uh, you know, I work on the on the class library side, so I'm not working on the runtime, and I was a customer for a very long time, and I have a lot of experience of talking to customers, and the runtime was always the scary thing, so I felt when we open source, we will surely get a lot of, like, attention from the community on the class library side, meaning a lot of pull requests, and because it's easy to have an opinion, it's easy to do a fix, and I expected that to be somewhat of a hot topic. I quite frankly did not expect the runtime to have a super strong community from the get-go because it's very specialized code. It's very hard code. Uh, it's basically, you know, you have to be good at writing native code, but for .NET, so that's a somewhat smaller audience. Uh, and uh, I was proven wrong very quickly. I mean, we open source on a Tuesday, and uh, on Thursday, we got our first pull request where somebody did the initial porting work to bring up uh, our runtime on the Mac. And uh, turns out that guy uh, was not new to this whole thing. Uh, he never worked for Microsoft, but he was a long-time contributor of uh, Mono, which is a pretty well-known open-source version of .NET, which you know we never worked with because uh, you know they were essentially an open-source version, and our side it wasn't aligned with the business. And now, actually, with us open-sourcing, we finally got the alignment that we needed in order to incorporate that community better. Uh, in fact, the company that, that started uh, or like you know still funds Mono uh, because they went after iOS and Android for mobile devices, uh, we acquired a few months ago. Uh, but we had a very long-running relationship with, with their community, uh, and their community is still much bigger than the people that are just working for us right now. But it, it's amazing to see like this convergence of, of like forces once you actually give people incentives. And I mean, to me. If you're an open source contributor, like your incentive is you can keep your own code or you can contribute it. But the nice thing is, as Lee said, if, you, if there's scenarios that you care about but that we don't care about, you can make us care about it by just adding the code to the product. And uh, But you can always, like, you know, because you have, you have very liberal licensing for our code, you can just take the code essentially and, like, build your own product on top of that and sell that if you want to. And so, like, the incentive for the community is pretty strong to just make .NET the best possible platform because it's a, it's essentially a, an open and free platform for everybody to use. And uh, we are kind of like the, 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 the probably the strongest funders, you know, party in terms of 
financial backing by, by a large company. But we already work with many other companies. I mean, a good one is, is Unity, which is a company that does game engines on top of .NET. Um, there's uh, you know other countries, uh, sorry, other companies that actually do uh, stuff that uh, you know they want to basically repackage .NET and, and, and sell that we are working with. And so there is already an ecosystem that is you know pretty big and uh, synergetic right from the get go. And I'm actually amazed how quickly that happened. But on the other hand, it's not too surprising if you consider that .NET was always very attractive. And the, I guess the biggest thing that held it back over the years was the fact that it was basically Windows only and not open source. And both of these hurdles are now removed. And uh, I guess the floodgates are now open on both sides. <laughs> Definitely. So as we begin to wrap up, you are both program managers at Microsoft. And the role of program manager, project manager, uh, this role is... A, it's very interesting to me, and we have not done a lot of shows on Software Engineering Daily about program manager management or project management, um, and you work on a very unique project. There's diplomacy to be had both within Microsoft and within the open source community. So what is it like being a program manager for the .NET project? So imagine standing in the middle of a tornado. No, that's not right. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's, it's been... That's one of the things that I was really reminded of was just how hard it is to to make a one o product. It had been a long time since I'd done that, um, and so just in general, that was that was a good reminder. Um, it this is certainly an exciting thing. You know, we're doing a lot of new things, um, especially around um, the different operating systems. Um, and, and for me, that's, that's one of the places that I've, I've had a lot of fun um, is, you know, being able to exercise some, some long dormant muscles um, within Linux and, and helping to, um, you know, the, the team around me to, to kind of come along and, and see the value and, and uh, just kind of buy into it. Um, so that's, that's been certainly interesting. Um, for my role, I, I spend most of my time thinking about uh, you know how we release these things. Um, uh, Mo's more on the the design um, side of the, the fence. Um, you know, so for me, it's it's how do we get this new thing out to customers um, in in kind of the most efficient way and, and attractive way possible? How do we make it so that they can get to this stuff and and reason about it? And you know, how do we not only um, get this stuff easily to anybody at any time if they want, but how do we do it in a way that um, is really stable for the enterprise customer that may not want to be moving you know at the speed of light like somebody else would? Um, and how do the support policies and and all of the the follow-on um, bits of policy have to have to work. Um, you know, if if there's uh, you know, some kind of update that we have to get, there, if there's a security problem, um, how does that happen on all the machines and all the different places where this application might be? Um, so, from my perspective, th- these are the you know, kind of problems that I that I juggle and and when it. Um, when there's an engineering solution involved, um, yeah, that's, that's where I engage with, with our developers to, to uh, help design that thing and, and make sure that it works well for customers. I mean, the, if you're confused by the term program manager, like that's, that's normal. <laughs> but I think the, the, the interesting thing is really like if you think about the roles that are involved in the software product, right? Like you basically have developers that write code and you may have testers that actually test it or now the trend is to say that developers write their own unit tests and then you have 
specialized disciplines that, that deal with writing code that make sure the infrastructure is exercised, which is you know the whole DevOps thing. But then you still have people that have to do all the other stuff that doesn't involve writing any code or exercising code, right? Which is ranging from project management over release management up until you know planning, you know, custom requirements gathering, and you know just making sure the right things are happening. And so Lee and I are both more or less opposite ends of the spectrum. Like I'm, I'm more actually involved with the design of the product, like the, the iteration, like making sure that we have the right custom requirements that we build the product that customers actually want. Uh, but then there's also the other side, which is, okay, now we have this awesome thing, but how can we deploy this? Like, does it, that, can we even deploy? Can we legally deploy it? Like, is it actually plugged into the right processes? Do we, can we, can we actually service the code? Like, what happens if there's a bug fix? Do we, have, do we have a mechanism to actually fix that code? I mean, those are usually things that people don't necessarily think about when they actually write code for the first time. I mean, it turns out versioning is always solved in V1, but then it's really... Um, you know, not solved, <laughs> and then you have to f- first roll out a fix and realize that it doesn't work. And so, like, there's a f- pretty strong discipline at Microsoft that that, that that basically covers that. And the job descriptions are pretty unique per team, I guess. Like in my case, given that I work on a team that owns a development platform, my customers are essentially developers. So if you look at me and a, a regular developer on my team, you probably don't find a super strong difference because we both deal with building the product except that I do it by building PowerPoints and writing emails and talking to people, and the devs does it by writing code. Versus if you look at Office, for example, it's very easy to understand what the, what the program manager does, right? Because they talk to the people that use, let's say, Word. They have to understand what are your workflows when you're using Word. So what kind of features and requirements would these people need? And so usually you will not find somebody in the Office team who does you know, UI design that will be able to write code. But in my case, because my customers are developers, I, I, of course I can write code and I do that quite a bit actually. It's just that it's not shipping code versus Lee's more on the, I guess, the process side of the house, which is uh, very important and, uh, and depending on where you ship and how you ship, potentially very differently defined. Well, um, Lee and Emo, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. I am following the .NET project closely and I hope that the listeners who have been requesting a show about .NET, .NET Core are uh, somewhat satisfied with this episode. So thanks again to you both. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks a ton for having us. 